Well, once again, good morning. Uh, we're glad to have you again this morning as we are joining. We're, uh, we're in our second to last week in the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. As you're turning there, I just want to mention a couple important dates that are coming up. Um, one, you probably saw this in the back of your bulletin, uh, but we're going to be having our annual congregational meeting August 28th. That'll be at 7, that's a Sunday. It'll be on 7 p.m. at the church office. And so uh, during that time, we'll be talking about what to expect for the year ahead. Um, but also very importantly, members, that's when we'll be voting on the budget. Uh, that's uh, when we, we approve the budget for the, the upcoming year, for 2022-23. So, uh, so members uh, do try to, to make it to that meeting if, if possible. Uh, we're looking forward to, to celebrating, in a sense, what we've seen, how God's been at work at Hope Fellowship, and also what he's going to be doing, what we anticipate he'll be doing in the coming year. Um, a couple other important uh, dates. As, as Chris mentioned in his prayer, Eric Channing is going to be beginning as our lead pastor September 1st. Uh, he'll be beginning his role then. Um, September 11th is we're going to have an installation service for him. That'll be here on Sunday morning. Uh, Chris Castaldo, who actually was one of the elders uh, at Hope Fellowship when Hope Fellowship was first founded. Uh, Chris Castaldo is going to be coming and preaching for that service, so we're looking forward to having him here. And then uh, Eric will begin his, uh, his regular preaching September 18th. So just so you kind of have a sense of important dates that are coming up in the life of our church, uh, there's kind of like something important almost every Sunday starting August 28th, so I guess just keep that in mind. Okay, well with that out of the way, uh, let's, let's pray and then let's turn to the book of Jonah. Father, we are grateful for your word. As we know you promised to do, you use it to to shape us, to mold us, and to conform us to the image of Christ. And so that's what we ask that you would do today. Ask your spirit, spirit, would you be present with us as we read and hear from your word? We pray that you'd be working in our hearts to refresh us, um, to melt us, convict us, and comfort us with your grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's read. We're going to be uh, looking at the first four verses of the book of Jonah. So let's read those together this morning. Jonah 4, 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is God's word. Now, we've been traversing with this prophet Jonah once he, when he started back in Israel when God's word came to him to go to the city of Nineveh and to proclaim their evil, that their evil had risen up to the Lord and that the Lord was going to destroy them. Jonah then fleed or fled, uh, fled from away from Nineveh, the opposite direction to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could get. And then we joined him in the sea as he was on his way to Tarshish, then out of the boat, into the sea, into the fish, back onto land. And then last week we saw him make the journey to Nineveh. 
and to actually give the message, this message of judgment, that Nineveh was going to, to fall, that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days. And those very short words set off this, this wildfire of conviction and repentance in the city of Nineveh. It ended in the whole city, including the king, crying out to God for deliverance. And, as we found out at the end of chapter 3, God relented. As the text said last week at the end of chapter 3, that God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And so the story of this repentant Assyrian city, in some senses, it seems like it could have been completed in chapter 3. Right? The, the, the message has been received. The people have repented. But Jonah wants us to see a little more of the story behind the curtain. Now, uh, many, many people, many theologians from over time recognize that uh, it's almost certainly Jonah who wrote Jonah, or at least he provided all the source material for it. Because in many ways, it's hard to imagine how anyone else could have written this story without Jonah's input. And that's relevant because it means that Jonah recognized that there were flaws in himself that needed to be seen, not to draw attention to himself, but for us to get a more complete picture of God's character and everyone's need for his mercy, including Jonah himself. And this really snaps into focus in chapter 4. We get a very clear picture of Jonah's heart and his mind. All throughout this book, as we've seen, if you've been with us, there's been these kind of hints, and then there's some really obvious giveaways, that Jonah is having this kind of tumultuous experience all throughout this book, which obviously, when God tells him to go one place, he runs the other direction. Clearly, there's something going on in his mind. And today, we get a far clearer picture of why that was the case in our text today. In fact, it's kind of an uncomfortably clear picture in some ways of what is going on emotionally and internally for Jonah. Now, uh, any of us who have spent time around other human beings know that there's this, um, this monster that we call the clique, right? the C-L-I-Q-E-E, a group of people that kind of intentionally chooses to exclude others. And all of us have likely experienced this at some point. It seems like very especially present in school. Um, But I imagine that all of us at some point have have felt this feeling of of being excluded from some some group. And what's interesting about cliques is that even though most everyone, I think, has, has probably experienced this in some way, they still exist. You'd expect that if everyone feels it, then maybe once they become a part of a group, they wouldn't want to be doing the excluding, but that's not how it works, right? Like once, once someone gets ex- invited into an exclusive group, the human nature might kick in and we know what might happen. They then want to like the feeling of being in an exclusive group because it makes them feel special. And there's some similarity in that concept to the click in our passage today. Jonah does not want the Assyrians to be fellow recipients of God's mercy, like Israel was. And that makes him mad when they receive it. And in fact, one of the major themes that runs through this chapter, the entire chapter 4, is, is anger. Jonah's anger and God dealing with that anger. And very specifically, anger directed at God for what God has done. And so as we look at these four verses, there's a, there's a couple main points I want us to walk away with. Three, actually. First, anger at God comes from deformed desires. Second, we combat anger at God by remembering the work of God. And then finally, we, uh, ang- we, jo- excuse me, J- 
Jonah's failure shows us our need for a better prophet. Run through those again. Anger at God comes from deformed desires. We combat anger at God by remembering the work of God. And Jonah's failure shows us our need for a better prophet. It's my hope as we go through these verses that our own temptations towards any bitterness or anger at God would melt in the face of the mercy that God has shown to us in Jesus. Um, Kids, if you're with us, last week uh, I asked you to answer a question, to listen and see if you could answer a question that was going to be in the sermon. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing again this week. It'll be a little easier this week. I know last week was kind of hard. Sorry about that. Um, But some of you still got it, so great job. Um, But kids, the question I want you to listen for this week is this. What did Jonah forget? All right, you get that? Here's the question I want you to listen for. What is it that Jonah forgot? What did Jonah forget? And if you don't figure it out, ask your parents. And they'll be listening carefully, I'm sure. If that doesn't work, then come ask me. I'll tell you. All right, now as I just mentioned, chapter 4 comes on the heels of God relenting from punishing Nineveh for their violence. Now we've referenced this throughout this, uh, throughout this series, but this wasn't like um, people hitting one another <laughs> or like petty theft. Um, it wasn't even like watching gladiators kill one another for sport. The Assyrians would publicly mutilate people and did it in awful, awful ways. There's not really a good modern equivalent of what this, this group of people were like in terms of how they treated nations that they took over and rebels. And these are the people that God had chosen to save, to show his mercy towards. John Calvin calls this entire story a display of the gratuitous benevolence of God, which I like that. It does feel a little gratuitous in a sense. It almost feels uh, like it's, it's almost inappropriately over the top, the mercy of God, because of the wickedness of the recipients of it. And Jonah certainly thought it was inappropriate. Verse 1 says, The salvation of the Ninevites displeased him exceedingly. The literal Hebrew wording of that is that the mercy of God was evil to Jonah. That this was an evil thing to him. And so he prays to God in chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and he, he gives a reason for the anger that he has. And that leads us to this first point that I want us to see. That anger at God comes from deformed desires. As I said, this chapter gives us the most clear picture of the complexity of Jonah's relationship to God. He's confused, he's angry, but but we get the sense that one of the first things he does here is he prays, which is a good thing. uh, It seems that he's, he's maybe learning something from the first couple chapters of this book. You can't run away from God, the one who made everything, but you can talk to God about your frustrations. It's a good thing. But as we see what he prays, it seems maybe not quite as good of a thing. So take a look down again at Jonah's prayer, down in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." So he begins explaining to God, as if God needs this explainer, what God is like. And he, he accuses him by using what God is like. 
Um, and he says this is the reason that he ran away in the first place. He was afraid that if, if somehow he wound up telling the Ninevites that God was going to judge them, that God would somehow save them, that they'd be included in the people who had received God's mercy. Now, I want to just take a moment to, to, to think about this, this for a moment. Why Jonah, why it would cause him so much distress for this people to be saved, these Assyrians to be saved. Now, a lot of people have pointed out that, that what happened was like one of the best resume builders you could have as a prophet. Right? This was an incredibly wicked city, pagan, and all it took was a, like essentially a one-sentence sermon by this prophet to turn the entire city to repentance and to call on the name of the Lord, which seems like a, 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 something a prophet would like to have in his, in his back pocket. as something that he's done in the past, um, or at least be neutral about, if not excited. But Jonah's not. He's angry. But his reaction makes some sense if we keep in mind what was happening between Israel and Assyria around this time. Assyria was a very powerful nation, but they had not yet conquered Israel. But there were prophecies that were happening right around Jonah's time that were predicting that if Israel didn't begin following God again, that God was going to use Assyria to destroy Israel. And at the very least, if Jonah didn't re- realize or believe those prophecies, he could recognize politically what was happening, that Assyria was growing and that they would likely take over Israel. And so, you can, it starts to make a little more sense of what Jonah was thinking back in chapter 1. If he thinks that Nineveh, Nineveh is this very important city to Assyria, and he's thinking, okay, if God's going to destroy what was eventually to become the capital of Assyria— and Assyria seems like this threat to my country, then if I get as far away from Nineveh as possible so that, I don't have to, so that they don't hear about the judgment of God, then maybe they'll still be judged. Assyria will fall. Israel will be saved. So when God redirects Jonah's path and eventually forcibly brings him back to Jonah, this, this short sermon that we saw last week with essentially no information about God himself makes some sense. Now, we don't, there might have been more to that sermon, but it would not be a surprise if Jonah left out the repentance part of the message. But either way, when Jonah realizes that this message of judgment has stopped the judgment from happening, he gets mad. And he has this outburst of anger. Now, to make one clarification for this week and next week as we talk about anger, uh, we reference that there's, there's different ways anger manifests itself. We know this. Sometimes anger is this response that happens in the heat of a moment, like an adrenaline rush that comes in response to something happening that leads to a violence reaction. Um, that doesn't seem to be the kind of anger Jonah's dealing with here. Jonah's anger seems to be a, a deeper kind of almost bitterness towards God for what God did. David Pallison once wrote that when desires turn into demands, and then those demands aren't met, then it leads to anger. And eventually it leads to despairing of life entirely, which I think makes a lot of sense of Jonah's situation here. His desire for Israel to survive as a nation makes sense. It's his country, it's his family, it's his friends, perhaps it's his children. So he doesn't want an Assyrian takeover of Israel. And in Jonah's case, it seems as though that desire of Israel remaining a sovereign nation had become a demand that was not going to be met. 
And so he gets mad and he accuses God of being God, of being merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so these deformed desires have kind of twisted Jonah's view of God and God's character. It's led him to anger at who God is. You might remember a few weeks ago when Aaron Camp preached on Jonah 2, he mentioned that the book of Jonah is written as a satire. It's one that's meant to use Jonah's story to illuminate something about the people of Israel. And this is where that story as a satire, this story is a satire for Jonah as an illustration to Israel about what they're like. This is where it begins to hit home for them. That's where it's going to, this is going to bring us to our second point, that we combat anger at God by remembering the work of God. Now, uh, if Jonah's accusation sounds familiar, it might be because we just read a psalm at the beginning of this uh, service that used that same language, but originally that's coming from Exodus chapter 34. It's essentially a direct quote from Exodus 34. Jonah's using this scripture that God said about himself to accuse God. So here are the verses from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is speaking about Moses when he's up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So these are the words that Jonah's using to, again, accuse God of what he had done for the Ninevites. But what Jonah seems to be forgetting is that this comes right after the golden calf incident. All right, so back up two chapters in Exodus, Exodus 32. God has just rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai to worship him. And Moses, the leader, has gone up to Mount Sinai to receive God's instructions for how this new, this new little nation, this new little people are supposed to live together and, and more importantly, how they are to worship God as his people. But while he's up on the mountain, the Israelites decide that they want to use something physical to worship God. So they melt their gold, they create this, this calf, um, and then they begin using that as a way to, to worship Yahweh, using this, this physical image kind of copying some ways that they would have seen the Egyptians worshiping their gods, which is directly counter to what God wants them to do, directly counter to how God wants them to worship him. And so Moses, while he's up on the mountain, God tells him what's going on, and God says that Israel deserves to have to be consumed by God's wrath because of how they have essentially already been using other ways of worship to bring, to bring those to God. And Moses prays on behalf of Israel, asks God not to destroy them, and he specifically asks God to relent from the disaster that he was going to bring upon Israel. Exodus 32, 14 says, after Moses prays, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. that That also might sound familiar. If you look back at, excuse me, Jonah 3, verse 10, and the author of Jonah knows this. Right, they know this. They're, they're, they did not forget this. They are using the same wording from Exodus 32 and 34 to teach a very, very important point. And this is what Jonah forgot. Okay? What Jonah forgot 
is that his people had been saved because of God's mercy and grace, just like the Ninevites. Israel was in the exact same boat as Nineveh. Israel existed because God was gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And God's love for Israel had abounded so much that when they deliberately disobeyed him, he chose to spare them and did not destroy them. So Jonah was angry, but it put him in this very awkward position of accusing God of being a good God by bringing up the very things that led to Israel being a nation in the first place. And by making this accusation almost comical in nature as we read it, it makes us want to laugh at Jonah. Uh, it's showing us this picture of his heart, and then this is the part where the satire comes in, also a picture of the state of Israel, which had grown to love itself as a nation more than it loved worshiping God himself. That's the point of the satire, to show Israel that they had lost sight of their position before God, that they were sinners saved by grace, just like the Assyrian city of Nineveh. But even in his anger, God is gentle towards Jonah. Even in Jonah's anger, God is gentle towards Jonah in this process of bringing Jonah to an awareness of his need for mercy. So if you look again down at verse 4, God has this gentle question to Jonah where he says, Do you do well to be angry? Now you are likely familiar with the term Socratic method. It's this method of teaching via questions. The idea is for the instructor to Uh, help a student kind of uncover the flaws in their thinking or reasoning by asking the right questions and eventually leading the student to truth by helping them figure that out step by step. Jesus would use this often in his discussions with uh, the Pharisees and also with his disciples. Socrates lived a long time after Jonah, but it's the same kind of idea here. God is asking Jonah a question to force him to deal with this fact that he is in a very false position as an Israelite complaining to God about God showing mercy to a sinful group of people. But instead of God pounding Jonah, like we might be tempted to do as we read this, God instead probes Jonah's heart. Because again, this is who God is. He is a God who is merciful and gracious and too abounding in steadfast love to allow Jonah to remain in this anger without checking it. So like the Ninevites, God gives Jonah a chance to repent too, and to help him remember not just the work that God had done in the past for his people, but also of Jonah's own need for that work of mercy. Now, I I entirely believe in God's sovereignty, And I believe that this is the day that the Lord wants this text to be preached at this church on this Sunday, which tells me, I I hope, that there are people here who need to hear this message who may be feeling some bitterness towards God. Uh, Anger that may come from any number of places because of life circumstances that you're in or uh, some sense of life not going the way you want or because you may have had something genuinely evil happen to you, and you're wondering why God didn't change or stop, or why he did what he did. And if that's you, you might be sensing some resonance with Jonah today. And if that's the case, and the case for all of us, I think it's important for us to ask the question is, what do we do when we wind up in a spot where we can sense that there's bitterness in our hearts towards God? 
In particular, like Jonah, there's maybe desires that have grown too strong. They've become demands on God, but we still want them. And we're bitter at God that we don't have them. And so what do we do in that circumstance? So if that is the case, then I hope that means that if you're here and you're mad at God for your circumstances, that that means that you've acknowledged in some way that God is in control of what's going on in your life. I hope that also means that at some point you've committed yourself to Jesus and you've looked to him for forgiveness of your sin. So if that's you, if you're a Christian with bitterness or anger towards God in your heart, then here's what Jonah's teaching us, that it's to remember what we do in this moment is to remember what God has done for you and for his people. Remember that God is the one who went to enormous lengths to send Jesus to save you. The way that Jonah's constructing chapters 3 and 4 is very intentional to remind readers of what happened during the, right after the Exodus. It's recorded in Exodus 32 and 34 where God chose to show Israel mercy, the same mercy that the Ninevites had just received. So because God's mercy is glorified when it's given to people who don't deserve it, then that is what we are to remember. When we have bitterness or anger towards God that threatens our hearts, to remember the work of God's mercy. For Jonah and Israel, the major work of God's salvation that had happened up to this point was the exodus where God had rescued his people from physical slavery. That's what Jonah needed to remember. But for us, the major act of salvation that we remember is the life and the work of Jesus Christ. So that's going to bring us to our final and our a brief point, that we need a better prophet than Jonah. Now Jonah's words here, I think, show us, in a sense, by comparison and by contrast, what kind of Savior Jesus really is. When we get a chance to see, um, in Jonah's case, a very human messenger of God's judgment and eventually bringing God's mercy. In a lot of ways, Jonah's story has a lot of interesting parallels with what Jesus did, and Jesus himself calls us out in the Gospels. Jonah brought a message from God to Nineveh that led to their salvation. Jesus came to bring a message to condemn sin, but also to offer forgiveness and salvation to any who followed him. Jesus, the message, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jonah brought this message after spending three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus brought the gospel. The gospel was in many ways confirmed after Jesus was raised after spending three days in a tomb. And Jonah was sent to bring a people into God's family. And Jesus came to bring people from every single nation, tribe, peoples, and languages into his family. But there's obviously significant differences as well. well. And these are what I think underscore the reality of what an amazing, extraordinary Savior we have. Jonah went under protest and unwillingly to Nineveh. But Jesus came to bring the message of his salvation to us willingly, even though the personal cost to him would be far, far greater than what Jonah paid. Jonah's arrogance made him speak of non-Israelites with this kind of contempt. Jesus, as the Son of God, came with humility to us as a humble servant of the Father, although he was God. Jonah despised the people he was sent to, but Jesus was himself despised by the people he came to save 
Jonah was upset when he realized the Assyrians had been saved. Jesus opens his arms to anyone who follows him and brings them with joy into his family. And of course, Jonah ultimately did nothing of his own accord to save the Ninevites. He just told them they were going to die. But Jesus died in order to save his followers. So this is the core of the message of God's mercy to us. It's this message that we have to keep close at hand in our minds when anger threatens to cloud or to penetrate our hearts. And so as we wrap up today, wrap up these four short verses, it's my hope that this picture of Jonah and his anger would help illuminate the areas in in our own hearts that God wants to illuminate. But again, more than that, as I said at the beginning, that the mercy that God has shown to us in Jesus would overcome any temptations we might face to harbor bitterness towards God. God worked mightily through this angry prophet Jonah, but he also worked supernaturally to save us through Jesus, who trusts in Jesus for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that in your tenderness towards us, you don't pound us, you haven't chosen to consume us when, we were lost, when we've lost sight of your mercy towards us. But instead, you remind us in many ways of the ways that you have brought us to salvation and what that salvation cost you and what it brings us into. So we ask that you would help keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we would never lose sight of the great gift that we have been given to be called children of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.